Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody. Bridget McGowan here, and welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. I have with me Jason Schlechterly. He is amazing. I cannot wait for you to hear the conversation. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Now, Jason, you have not always been a professional speaker. Tell us a little bit about, or a lot, about how you got to this point in your career. Yeah, I've been one of those lucky individuals to say I had two aha moments in my life, two defining moments that set my career paths in directions that I just never felt like I was working, like just always been in love with what I do. So the first was I always wanted to, to serve. And so after high school, I joined the United States Air Force. And then I, I was born and raised in Phoenix, wanted to be a Phoenix police officer, came home from the military and took a little while. You know, I got married, had a couple of kids. Life has a quick way of changing on us. So uh, around the time I was 26, there was the death of another officer that just really changed my life. And I said, all right, th th this isn't like, oh, I want to do this job. I have to do this job. It truly was a calling. So I went, applied, I got the job. Short 14 months into it, I was involved in a serious line of duty uh, injury accident. A guy hit me doing over 100 miles an hour. My car burst into flames. I was trapped inside, but uh, through the grace of God, so many miracles, timing, twists of fate, things you can't even, if I turn this script into Hollywood, they'd throw it away and be like, this is not even believable. Uh, had a fire truck in my intersection. They got me out, got me to the hospital, uh, was not expected to survive. Fourth degree burns to my neck, head and face, third degree, uh, lost a lot of my fingers. I was blind for a long time. I was in a coma for a couple months, a lot of therapy, a lot of surgeries, but I fought my way back to work where I was a homicide detective. And that was a just an incredible honor to speak for victims who can't speak for themselves and work with families affected by the ultimate violence. Uh, it, it was just incredible. And it really went a long way in my own recovery process to be productive and doing something bigger than myself. Well, in the meantime, because I was on duty and, you know, back then, not so much right now, uh, but, you know, you think I became a cop in 1999 and we had September 11th and 01. I mean, cops and first responders were very loved. So my story was on the news a lot. And then uh, 10 months after the accident, I carried the Olympic torch. 18 months after the accident, we had our third child, a, a kid who shouldn't even be here right now. And I just kept having these things and they'd, they'd pop up on the news. And so people would invite me to schools or to churches. And I, of course, I wasn't going to say no, but I'm thinking, I have no idea how to speak in front of people. I have no idea how to tell my story. 
and my story hadn't really evolved, which that, you know, I'm not going in there to educate people on exactly how to be a good salesperson or a specific computer technology that, you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of public speakers. Mine is purely, here's my story. And I don't even really like the term motivational, inspirational, like, you know, I'm going to put it out there raw and vulnerable. And I hope the water fills the cracks of the room to whatever you are going through. But I didn't know what I was doing. So I kept doing that for a while. I retired from the police department, went into business for myself. And in 2010, I was invited to do a speech and there were 700 people in the room, which when I walked in, I was like, wow, that's a lot of people. Turns out it's a whole lot easier to speak to a large group than it is like 20 people. That's intimidating. Uh, so I do my speech and when I get done with the speech, you know, usually I'll get like for a crowd that large, let's say 15 or 20 people line up. Hey, can I take a picture? Shake my hand. Well, a guy walked up. Now this is 2010 and he had tears running down his face. And all he said to me was, Jason, I was, I'm a New York firefighter. I was at 9-11. I lost a bunch of my friends and I'm currently going through a divorce and you changed my life today. And that was my second aha moment. I walked out of the building. I mean, as soon as the doors closed, I was on my cell phone, sold my company that I owned and said, I know what I need to be doing. And I started the journey of how do I do this and how do I get better at it? Okay. <laughs> wow, wow, and wow. Now, why didn't you say no when you were originally approached? Because you said you, in the back of your mind, you were thinking, I have no idea how to speak in front of people. So when someone initially said, hey, we, we want you to speak, why didn't you say, uh-uh? Well, I think it was still a little bit of the the call to service, you know, I got so much community support throughout my accident, my family, my kids from money donations to people showing up and mowing our grass and delivering food, the prayers. And so part of me was like, you, you have no right to say no. And then when it came to like my parents and being a little scared of going into schools, I tried to remind myself, listen, there's a lot of people out there who don't get fire trucks to intersections. There's a lot of people out there who don't get that second chance to go home to their family. So this isn't just about me. I get to be a voice for so many other people that aren't here to speak. And I tried to let that be my, my strength and my guide, even though it was very difficult, uh, you know, to go into schools or to stand up on stage. And, you know, back then it was a little bit of, uh, uh, and then, you know, I just, I didn't know how to talk. So, uh, but I always found a reason to do it versus a reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. That's pretty compelling because I, I'm reading a book right now called The Magic. And in one section of it, it talks about, and I'm paraphrasing here, how you should spend so much more time finding what's right, what's good, what's 
working well as opposed to spending time on what what's broken, what hurts, what's problematic. And what you spend your time thinking about is what you will attract and you will get more of. If you're constantly talking about how broken, busted and disgusting you are, you're going to stay broken, busted and disgusting. So I like how you talk about how you, it, it was just more important to, to give and um, yeah. provide this message for people who need it than to keep it to yourself. Yeah. 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 Everybody, Jason Schechterly is or was a police officer who was trapped inside a burning vehicle. Uh, Jason suffered extreme burns to over 40% of his body, dramatically altering his appearance. His incredible story of survival is now his calling sharing a new perspective on life, rebirth, and transformation in speaking engagements you will not soon forget. Jason represents the human experience at its very best, an uphill climb from despair to describing himself as the luckiest person alive today. Jason travels the world as a professional speaker, keynote speaker, sharing his incredible story, which has been described as engaging, engrossing, and very entertaining. He books more than 75 engagements each year. That means he is on a stage multiple times in a week. Jason has found his calling in inspiring others to overcome adversity, big and small, with a message that applies to everyone. Jason, tell me this. What is a presentation you've delivered that just moved both you and your audience so much until it was just, I mean, it was just one of those experiences that's unforgettable. Yeah, I, you know, I'm blessed to say I've had a lot, a lot of those because of, because of the majority of my speeches are to people who are going to relate of course you know the like the medical community the law enforcement community yeah i find it i, I find it a lot more fun for myself uh to like recently i was in england and i did six, six speeches in seven days and most of them were to a professional football team you know what we know as soccer yeah. well these are yeah. million dollar athletes and i was able to relate to them so much and they related to me how that, but how i mean i'm going to assume you're a millionaire too but how you come from two different worlds because the way i connected with them is it was multiple ways but the reader's digest version is they they athletes are taken for granted in the sense that they have this perfect life. They've achieved their goals. They're getting paid a lot of money and you're here to entertain us. And I connected with them, first of all, by explaining to them, look, my former career and my burns are the two least important parts of the story. That it, they do not matter. What matters is life is happening to all of us. We are all having our human experience and we have to read and write our own pages and chapters and go 
in that direction. And then I was able to connect with them about, you know, there was a story, the Arizona Diamondbacks that I'm a huge fan of love baseball and they won the world series in the fall of 01. And I was able, I was blind. I weighed maybe 115 pounds. I'm six, three, weighed maybe 115 pounds. I was so frail and sick, but I could listen to a game and kind of get lost as a fan. Well, when they won the world series, you know, I was yelling and screaming and so excited. Well, a couple of years down the road, my wife was interviewed and they asked her point blank, when did you know Jason would be okay? And she said, when the Diamondbacks won the world series and I saw his reaction and that hit me. I was like, wow, that's powerful that she noticed that. And so I was able to explain to these athletes, look, it's not just a couple hours in the stands there's 27,000 people in your stadium, you have no, no idea what you do for them. If you, all the blood, sweat, tears that you put into doing what you do before the game, would you want to go out on the field and do it for no one? Have nobody cheering or booing you? Would you want to not be coached? Would you not want your mentors to see you? No, you, you want to be the man in the arena so I connected with them on those levels. And, and I always, my, the way I share my story is, is such a personal thing. It, it is very raw. It is very vulnerable. But what I want people to understand is adversity is adversity. And we're not going to, Comparison is the thief of joy, right? Somebody's got a better house, a better car, makes more money. Well, when you do that with adversity, it's 10 times worse. If you look at somebody and go, oh, my problems are small. And I had to learn this the hard way because I get people coming up to me after my speech and go, oh, you make me look uh, like I've had no problems. And I'm like, no, you weren't listening or I did a terrible job. I'm like, even if it's something as simple as you're trying to get your kid to school tomorrow or you have an important meeting and you get a flat tire. Are you going to stand on the side of the road and think, well, at least I don't look like Jason. Listen, my face is not going to air up your tire. That's your adversity right now. Fix your damn tire. That's, <laughs> that's what I want people to understand. We're all going to have, I think, similar adversities. We all went through COVID in our own way. We all suffered. We're still suffering. Our kids are suffering. A lot of us have, you know, maybe divorce in the family. Definitely, if you're lucky enough that the circle of life goes the right direction, you have death in the family. So we have some commonalities, but guaranteed each and every one of us is going to have that one thing that's unique to us and how you react and respond. You know, what your grit, what your resilience is made of is, is the key. And so that's how I relate. But the, the honest answer to your question is when I speak to organ and tissue donation facilities and I speak to either families of uh, donors or I speak to staff, uh, you know, my life was saved with tissue donation. It's not something people talk about a lot. Uh, you hear about a heart transplant or kidney transplant. Those are easy. The Tissue is not talked about a lot, but that is 100% what actually saved my life. And to make that connection 
so that they understand that what they're doing is worthwhile. I, I did one in Nevada recently, and this this woman came up to me. She's probably my age. I'm 50. And she said, my husband died, uh, and it was long, it was five or six years ago. And she said, and he was a tissue donor, and I never understood why that mattered. And now I, and she's crying. And she said, and now I get it. And she gave me the biggest, tightest hug. And I was like, I don't have to do anything else in life. That that was it. Like I'm done right now. My plane can go down on the way home and I have achieved my own Mount Everest because that woman's tears and, and genuine appreciation at what her husband was able to do in death. And she never knew it, which that's kind of heartbreaking, but I was finally able to be the one to get that. And there were 500 people in the room. And this is yeah. the one woman that just knocked me out. And you really make an important point here that I want listeners to think about. There were 500 plus people in the room. And you said, you know, she gave you the tightest hug. You gave her the aha and just changed her perspective. And you said, you know what? I don't have to have another big achievement. This is it. Listeners, I want you to understand you don't have to have everybody bum rushing you and jumping and cheering and hollering. If you impact one person with your message, you've done some good work. You're successful. 100%. You, you cannot fail if you touch one person. You can't. Yes. It's impossible. Yes. If you make one person's life better, you absolutely can never be a failure. Now we're talking about the power of impacting one person. Let's talk some more numbers. Now you no, said back in 2010, you did this presentation, 700 people in the room. Right. And you said it feels easier to speak to a larger audience than a room of 20. I feel the same way. I'm wondering what your take is on that. For me, it so my... If I do just my keynote presentation, which is yeah. my story, overcoming right. adversity, resilience, there's obviously, uh, you know, I got to lay the foundation. I got to take people down a very dark road that is is pretty sad for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I had a three-year-old son at the time who would openly say, you're not my dad. I mean, and when father's in the room, immediately people start crying. And then we start the upswing. And I have a lot, there's a lot of humor in my story. Okay. And it's all true because the funniest things are always actually happen. I don't have to make them up. So it's this wonderful journey. Well, when you're, and I, as a speaker, like I feed off the energy of the audience. If when I show the hardcore medical pictures, I want to hear the gasps. When I tell people I was hit, at 115 miles an hour, I want people to be like, whoa. And then when I share the funny stories, you want to hear the laughter. Well, when you get a smaller group, you know, we as individuals don't always like to stand out. So we're not going to laugh the loudest. We're not going to, we're probably going to try and hold back our tears. And also, if there's 500 people in the room, I don't care if 20 of them are distracted, bored, on their cell phones, doing emails. I don't even notice. Or if I do, I go to, I go to looking at somebody else. 
when you're in a room with like 20 people, it it gets a little like, eh, what uh, am I messing up? You know, and then you start to get in your head because I'm, I mean, I'm very confident in my abilities, but I still know I can always get better. And I still know I'm one bad speech away from, you know, falling off the cliff. So when you see things like that, it can be a little unnerving yeah. and they're more noticeable in a small, intimate group setting. So that's why I'm like, when I go, and I usually don't know until I go to a presentation, uh, I like to be surprised. I like every stage is different. Every audio visual setup is different. You have technical issues. Uh, sometimes you have rows of seats. Sometimes you have circle tables with 10 chairs. You just never know. And I love to be surprised and then get into, I have my own way of, it's a solid 60 minutes prior to the speech. I have a way of getting into my zone. Well, that's when I'll ask how many people are here. And I'm always praying, please say 250 or more. Please say 250 or more. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when they do, I could just feel that warm blanket, like, oh, it's yes. going to be a good day. But yeah. if they say, oh, we have about 80, I'm like, okay. And then I have to remind myself, hey, you're here to do a job. They brought you here. Get focused. Don't be disappointed. That's not okay. But I still, again, I'm human. So I still have those emotions, but yeah. I'm always looking for that. 250 is like my, uh, that's my target number. And anything above that is a, woohoo, let, let, yeah, let's get I, this on right now. Yeah, I, I totally, when I say I totally get it, I totally get it. Now, you did not originally set out in your career to be a professional speaker. I am going to go out on a limb. I didn't either. I, I'm going to go out and take a guess and say, you made a mistake or two. I made 200 or 300 initially. Can you, can you think of a hiccup and how did you turn it around? Yeah, I've, I've definitely made plenty of mistakes. Uh, one of the bigger ones that stands out to me is I have one, only one part of my presentation that I have to, in order for the story to have the impact yeah. and, and the truth behind it, yeah. it has uh, a bad word. And okay. I did not warn the pastor ahead of time and I was in church. Well, I got in a lot of trouble for that. The company got in a lot of trouble for that. Now the audience loved it because of the story, but afterwards it was, a big oops. And then uh, I did one recently that it was just, I walked out of there and I still every day, it was only about two months ago. I'm like that was the worst speech you've ever done. And it's going to happen, but I let it get to me that the audio visual didn't work. Oh. Um, you know, I have a, I have a very powerful introductory video that really sets the stage and then I, I use pictures and it's my family. It's, it's the scene of my accident. It's, it's just all these things that, that take you on a journey. Well, all of a sudden without warning, that was gone. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. And then I had, it was set up in a restaurant. So where I'm standing, I had a table sitting basically behind me. So they're staring at my back while I'm talking out here. Cause I couldn't go anywhere else. It was a setup like I'd never seen. And I let that get in my head. 
And I just, I just failed miserably. And I, 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 I was supposed to speak for an hour and I bet I spoke for 30 minutes and I was not able to turn that around. And, and that was, uh, as a tough pill to swallow. And, you know, you learn from it. If, if I give a hundred speeches and 99 of them are good, I can't complain, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it happens. I mean, it absolutely happens. I, uh, in January of this year, I was doing a presentation and, and this was just beyond my control. There was problems with the technology, although we were doing everything we could to get things right. The acoustics of the room, the architecture of the room made it a real challenge, although my voice carries very well, but it, that didn't matter. And then the microphone, I can't remember those. Anyway, it was just one of those things where it's like, uh, and I felt like I had done all that I could do beforehand to try to prepare and mitigate and so on and so forth. You do the best you can, you step back, <laughs> you know, assess what could be do, done differently next time. And you just kind of keep moving forward. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I completely hear you. We could probably sit and commiserate for hours over <laughs> technology, glitches, <laughs> and everything else. Now, you've also taught at Arizona State University. You've taught public speaking there. What is the number one advice you give your students? And then you'll have a chance to ask me a question in a second too. But I want to know, what's the number one advice you give those students at ASU when you're teaching public speaking? Well, so the opening piece of advice I give them is perspective. And these are, you know, these are younger generations. And I try to explain to them, public speaking is not about simply doing what I do. You're going to be in situations where you're on a Zoom meeting with just four people. That's public speaking. If you have to get a message across, sometimes it could be you need to have a talk with your uh, your kids someday, or you need to have a talk with your parents someday. Public speaking is not just something thing you think about. It We need it across the board. And the perspective I give them, I try to be, again, I love humor, and you probably know this quote, but Jerry Seinfeld once said that people were asked what their number one fear in life was, and it was public speaking. Number two was death. And he made the point, he said, so if you're given the eulogy at a funeral, you're saying it would be better to be the person in the casket than doing the, doing the speech. <laughs> and then everybody can kind of laugh and relax and be like, well, yeah, that is a little ridiculous. But the main thing I tell them is, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And my first year, I might have done seven speeches. Second year, I might have done 10 or 11. And I wasn't getting paid much. I didn't have the right to charge very much. My business has grown. And I can still aspire to be a Tony Robbins. Uh, the guy has affected hundreds of thousands of people. But I don't want to be Tony Robbins. I don't want to sound like Tony Robbins. I, I'm not a pound the podium. This is how you do things. I'm not like that. I'm very conversational and I'm just telling a story and you get to choose how you want to absorb it. So being authentic is really all that matters in public speaking. You just have to be you. And you know, I'm saying this on a podcast, which I'll probably get in trouble because I did a TEDx talk once. 
and I don't know if you're a fan, but over the years, it's become such a big business. I watch all these TED Talks and everybody sounds the same. Everybody's monotone. Everybody's, you know, standing in one place like they're a robot. And I'm like, no. And there was, there was a book that came out in 1971, Albert Moravian. He was a, a, professor, a doctor at uh, UCLA. And he wrote a book and he came up with the 55-38-7 rule. And this is powerful. 7% of your message is delivered through the words. Only 7%. 38% is the tone of your delivery but 55% is your body language. So get, I'm a real, I mean, it's kind of funny. What I hate most about my appearance is my hands. They're very deformed. I, I do not like them. And, but I'm a hand talker. So I'll get up there. I got the clicker in one hand and I always make sure I have a lapel mic because I'm not carrying around a microphone. And I, but I'm always talking with my hands. I'm walking. I'm like, get that podium throw it away. I ain't standing. I ain't standing behind a podium. That's not me. I'm walking, I'm walking around. I'm engaging with the audience. I'm looking yeah. in the front row. I'm looking in the back row and it's just my style. And as long as you are authentically you and don't try to be somebody else, don't try to sound like somebody else, you are going to be successful because that's what people gravitate toward. Right. Like right. when you're real, if I had, if I never met you, right? Yeah. And I went and was sitting in your audience, like, I wonder what she's got to say today. Uh, you know, I wonder why I'm here. I was told to be one of those, you know what I mean? And then you get up there and within two sentences, I guarantee I'd be like, oh, leaning forward in my chair. Like, I can't wait for the next word. And that's how you get people. So that's the key to public speaking. Just be you. I'm over here mouthing the word yes, 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 <laughs> over and over again. When you were talking about getting that lectern off the stage, I'm telling you, it drives me insane. How can you glue yourself behind that thing? I was on a prep call with someone last week for an organization I'm going to be speaking at in San Diego in late May, and they are going to simulcast my session to their remote, uh, their virtual conference attendees as well. And so I said, and the lady I was talking with, her name is Bridget as well. I said, Bridget, I I've got to ask you, do I have to stay up there on that stage? I figured the answer would be yes, but I wanted to make sure because I'm like you, I don't stand still. She's like, I know you like to move around. So you it's a huge stage. You'll be able to move. And I'm like, Bridget, you don't understand. It's not just being able to move from right to left. I need to go forwards and backwards too. So I'm going to do the best I can. But if you hear anything in the news about a really short woman falling off of a really big stage in San Diego at a, a huge conference, it's probably going to be me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's my that's my biggest fear that has not happened. And my goal is to go all the way through life saying, I did not fall off the stage. That's I'm gonna uh, be pulling for you. You oh pull for goodness. me, I'll pull for you. <laughs> oh, so just, Jason, what's your question for me? Oh, you know what? I would like to know what at what moment because my answer to this is, is so odd. At what moment in your talk does it occur to you 
that you are uh, you're in your zone. You are on your track. What what is the moment? Because it's never right at the beginning. Like there's always going to be a, a a point where you're like, all right, I got this one. What what is it for you? Actually, pretty soon, pretty pretty early on, pretty mm-hmm. early on, and here's why. It's something you said earlier about giving them a reason to listen. You were talking a bit about being authentically you. Mm-hmm. I lean on, and, and that gives people a reason to listen, mm-hmm. but I also lean on giving them a reason to scooch to the edges of their seats very early on. Now, this is going to be different for a training versus a workshop versus a webinar versus a keynote versus a breakout session, <laughs> right? right? But it doesn't matter what type of presentation I'm giving. I give you a reason to lean in very early on because I know I don't have a lot of time to grab your attention. You were talking about people are going to be on their phones. They're thinking about everything else. They got this laundry list of stuff to deal with. And so I know I don't have a lot of time to grab your attention and and then I've got to keep it. So you got to grab it. It's not enough to just grab it. You've got to maintain it. So very early on, but I know for sure when I see the shift in the body language, people are kind of looking a little differently. All of a sudden, they may have had their phones in their hands. They may have had their preparing just in case this is boring and they can hop on social media, right? But then I see the phones kind of get slid to the side and they're getting out pen and paper or there's a shift in their seats. And I know, I know I'm in the zone. So you're right. It's going to vary for different people. And then, like you said, you know, the type of presentation you're delivering and so on. But that's when I know it happens for me pretty early on, but I know I've got to get them because usually I'm talking about something boring, like presentation skills. So (laughs) I don't don't have the luxury of, you know, dragging them, I shouldn't say dragging them along, but trying to tease them along for 10, 15 minutes before I give them, I've got to do it pretty soon or their head not going to another session down the hall. Yeah, you got to do it real quick. So no, our answer would not have been much different. I, I know within the first 60 seconds and then it's, again, it's that, it's just like getting in a bath. That's the perfect temperature. That's yes. what it feels like. And I don't yes. think people understand. It's okay to be selfish as a presenter. It's yeah. okay to say, this feels really good. When you walk out the room or, you know, for me, go back and get on an airplane, people can stare at me all they want in the airport. I just had the best day ever. And selfishly, it's okay to embrace that and be proud of yourself. Uh, But yeah, I'm with you. Once you know you got the audience, man, then it's just. It's on. It's it's on. Oh, yeah, it's on. (laughs) And it gets to be a lot of fun. Everybody, make sure you visit Jason's website, Burning Shield common spelling, and I'll make sure it's in there, the show notes, just scroll down to the bottom of the show notes, visit burningshield.com, learn all about Jason, book him for your next keynote, your audience will not be disappointed. Also, make sure you go over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you like to purchase your books and get a copy or two 
of his book. Give it to a friend. Uh, his book is entitled Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story. Okay. Now, this gripping biography of Jason's battle for life and justice celebrates the resilience of the human spirit while condemning corporate greed. It injects the intimacy of fiction into a true story of human endurance. And I need to correct myself, it's not Jason's book, but it is a book about him. Get it, period. That's what's important. Okay. It doesn't matter <laughs> when it was written, who wrote it, and so on and so forth. Go get a copy of that book. This at burningshield.com. Jason, what else does the audience need to know to make sure they're showing up, being themselves, and owning the microphone? Oh, just, again, just be vulnerable. We love, that's what human beings love. We don't, there's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance, right? Like, you have to be confident. Arrogance is a, is a turnoff. But you can be confident, get up there and speak, with authority, with knowledge, with a good tone of voice, believe in yourself, believe in what you're saying to the audience, but at the same time, you can also be vulnerable. And once you, once you do this, trust me, it's the greatest job in the world to be a public speaker. There's just nothing like it to be able to make a difference in somebody else's life. Again, you can never Ever, that's why we were put on this earth is to make somebody else better than we found them. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Jason Schechterly, you have been outstanding on the show and just an outstanding person in life, period. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. I'm honored. Awesome sauce. And thank you for listening to the show out there. Couldn't do it without you. I guess I could, but then what would be the point if nobody's listening? But I digress. I am Bridget McGowan. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone. <laughs>